Today's tale is called Trains, Hotels and Lovers. Inspired by my great-aunt Eleanor, who was described severely as a carefree spirit, a lost soul and even a loose woman, the story is also a yearning for travel and the importance of never being tied down. Trains, Hotels and Lovers Matthew was a lovely man. I remember him, standing naked, looking out of the window in room 207 of the Avenue Hotel in Eastbourne. He was unhappily married with four miserable grown-up children who despised him. He said that a sea view assuaged the guilt of his adultery, so we always met at the coast. We first slept together in Whitstable, and continued through Margate, Broadstairs, Ramsgate, Hastings, Eastbourne, Seaford and Brighton. By the time we got to Brighton, I was restless. Matthew was beginning to talk about love and a permanent escape from his marriage and his offspring. What should have been carefree and light-hearted was turning heavy and sullen. The sex became distraught and pointlessly aggressive, as if he were trying to stitch himself to me physically. We returned to Eastbourne for a last hurrah, and I ended it on the pier, watching the ice cream in his hand melt and dribble down his arm. But he was extraordinarily beautiful, by far the most handsome man I have ever slept with. There he was at the window that last time, in our superior sea-view room, gazing out over the water, so delicious, so vulnerable, so absolutely what I wanted at that precise moment. I stood next to him and gently caressed his body. It belonged to me, reacting to my softest touch. We kissed, and he smiled at me, and I led him to the bed, and yet, after passion had temporarily satisfied our greed, he returned to the window once more, and set his eyes on the far horizon, as lazy waves sighed on the shingle. He was falling in love with me, and he was falling through sorrow. He looked like a Greek god, cast in bronze, with hollow eyes. You could almost hear the sad loneliness echoing inside him. I didn't want his love, his eternal devotion, or the tedium of his pain. I wanted his joy, his laughter, and his sweet intelligence, and I wanted it for the season, not for life. Love, if you must have it, should be bright, sexy, ephemeral, a summer breeze that brushes your heart, then is gone. Otherwise, what is the point of it? But my happy philosophy was not the common wisdom. People always seemed to want certainty, commitment, the eternal weight of marriage. Why? It's not as if they didn't know they would regret it. You couldn't stop them. There they'd go, again and again, plunging into the fatal quagmire of relationships, then gasping, spluttering and sinking without trace. So many of my friendships, especially with women, disappeared into the ugly maw of matrimony. I, restless, moved on. The Avenue Hotel was a respectable establishment, so you had to carry your adultery with great conviction. In those long-gone and ridiculous times, I often fraudulently wore a wedding ring, and even had a fake marriage certificate delightfully fabricated on the headed and embossed paper of the Westminster Registry Office, stolen for me at considerable risk by my younger sister, who was the secretary of the chief registrar. As a consequence, my English lovers all became Mr. Bramble Worthingside, whenever suspicion was raised, as sadly it frequently was, a ludicrous appellation invented by my sister, that was, though, clearly more believable than Smith. 
I would flaunt my ring and kiss my certificate in the foyer of hotels, laying on the just-married imbecility so thickly that no liveried flunky would dare to challenge me. The avenue was nothing much to look at from the outside, but the interior decor was daringly artistic, and the bedrooms welcomed you with a spiky charm and with generous beds that cherished unbridled lust. It was most important to complement depravity with comfort. An affair must be tastefully decorated, served without cuisine and, if possible, vintage champagne. I was sorry to leave Eastbourne, with its salty Edwardian grace and its long, languid esplanade, but with Matthew dripping ice-cream at an increasing rate while he failed to suppress his tears, there was little option but to check out and catch the 11.30 back to Victoria. I was not, I am not, a cruel woman. I took no delight in Matthew's crumpled countenance. Regrettably, though, I have found that men fling their fantasies about with abandon, and expect compliance with the wildest of schemes, which the behaviour, the demeanour, and the expressed opinions and emotions of women have given them no cause to flaunt. Matthew was not selfish, but he was unrealistic. He only saw the future from his perspective, and was blinded by a desperate craving for some totally different life from the one he had, after all, chosen for himself. No matter. One cannot dwell on the misery of those we have left behind. The train journey from Eastbourne to London trundles amiably enough through England's green and pleasant. I always try to travel first class where possible. Not that I am wealthy, but I find that on trains the concept of class is unencumbered by the usual unpleasantness of English social distinctions. And if you take frequent long excursions by train, as I have done throughout my life, the slight added privacy and space of first class quickly becomes a sine qua non. And so we slipped past the towns of Sussex, Lewis, Plumpton, Haywards Heath, and gently pulled into the London terminus, as I speculated with mischievous excitement about my next adventure. The older man is a predictable beast, but the younger man is a wild irrationality like nothing else on earth. Enter Oscar Madigan, nineteen and full of Irish bluster. He swept me off my feet, very much literally, at the Hotel Stendhal in Grenoble. A total charlatan, of course, a trickster and a rogue, he was nevertheless the most sexually gifted man I have ever encountered. The fact that he tried to rob me, was found out, shrugged, then tried to make up for it with assiduous carnal attention, made it all the more marvellous. I had taken to the French Alps after the ghastly skiing season was over, and they had opened up their five-star establishments to the vagabonds of Europe at reduced prices. Grenoble is a lovely town, surrounded by icy peaks that stand guard on its perimeter. The approaching train turns a corner, and voila, the spectacular and the sublime. I strolled around the town in the warm yet crystal-clear air of spring, sipping a coffee here and a cognac there, hopping on a tram, wandering through the markets of the old town, and taking the chairlift up to the fort to peruse the panorama. I wasn't, in fact, I was never explicitly looking for romance or entanglement. They found me, and Oscar thought he had trapped a pretty butterfly who could be easily crushed by his machinations. Oh, the arrogance of youth! He was a mere boy, but that was his appeal. One could forgive so much. There was still some innocence snagged on the sharp edges of his ambition, and his stamina was remarkable. I lay back for the most part, but I didn't think of England. We danced 
He unfurled his sob story. We drank, we made love. He begged for money to pay off the totally imaginary brigands from whom he was fleeing. I resisted. He tried sobbing, imploring, demanding, and then stony silence. The sweet fool. I had anticipated a raid on my valuables and checkbook, and had made damn sure they were not in the flimsy safe of my room, but in the strong box of Monsieur Fragonard, the maitre d' of the establishment. So when I found Oscar frantically rummaging through my underwear, I confronted him with my suspicions. He was a professional thief, in Grenoble, to tease fortune from the female diaspora of European disappointment. He flitted and slunk from resort to resort, using his looks, his accent, and his lithe sensuality to fleece women of all nationalities. But I had found him out. I was certain that his real name was not Oscar Madigan, and that he was probably wanted by Interpol. He looked at me with outrage, which quickly deliquesced to shame, then to irritation, and then finally to laughter. We both agreed to dispense with morality. I had uncovered him, and I continued with the process. Of course, I have no idea whether the story he told me while we lay, naked and smoking in my four-poster bed, had even a scintilla of truth. He may not even have been Irish, but it helped to pass the time, until the remarkable powers of a young man's recovery had reset him for further delight. He was born in County Roscommon, allegedly. His mother was a serving girl, and his father was a priest. Though he received the usual physical chastisement that passed for education at the hands of the Christian brothers, he was close to no one except the mammy, who perished in tubercular circumstances. Disowned by Father Father, he drifted his way to Dublin's fair city, where he fell in with the citizens of the street, and made his living picking pockets and breaking into elegant homes around the sleepy Georgian squares. And then one day, after lighting the cigarette of a genteel lady of a certain age, it struck him that there might, after all, be an easier way. That night I cradled him in the shallow tenderness of my arms, after we agreed that I would not be his lifelong benefactor. Even so, I did pay for our fares to Lyon the following week, when we had both decided that we had quaffed quite enough chartreuse and lost our bread in one too many fondues. And at Lyon, after a casual stroll around the amphitheatre, I departed to meet a friend I had invented. Not, however, before Oscar presented me with a rather tasteful sapphire ring from his collection of stolen jewellery. He told me it was our engagement ring, and that one day, when he had proven himself worthy, he would seek me out and make me his wife. In his eyes at that moment there was a brilliant flicker of unguarded honesty. At least, that is the observation with which I flattered myself. I bade him adieu, and with a lingering kiss full of promise, understanding, and forgiveness. The train between Florence and Venice joins Disegno to Colore, the exquisite line of Tuscany, followed by the sumptuous colour of the city of canals. My travelling companion was a German intellectual called Gerhard Kertering. One simply must have one's brain stimulated from time to time. He was so enthusiastic about it all, and about explaining it all to me, and probably about being overheard explaining it all to me. Of course, much of his articulate revelation I already knew, but I didn't want to put him off his stride. There was something about his soft Teutonic assertion that I found exhilarating. He pressed my hand while expounding mellifluously on Masaccio's creation of three-dimensional space in the Holy Trinity of Santa Maria Novella. Beads of sweat blossomed on his forehead as the intensity of his lecture reached a crescendo of ecstatic observation. 
but really our affair was a tale of two Titians. After an enthralling encounter with the Uffizi, I took him back to my hotel room to reenact the Venus of Urbino on my chaise longue. He wasn't a particularly accomplished lover, but he had an appreciative eye and enjoyed my Italianate exhibitionism. Bless him. He infused our train journey between the two centres of Renaissance glory with a wide-eyed wonder that whetted my appetite. But nothing can prepare you for your first glimpse of the dazzling majesty of the Grand Canal. The busy fluttering of the water against the hull of your vaporetto, the kaleidoscope of hues that swirl and twist in the milky air, and the unique architecture of Christianized Islamic Gothic. It is total sensory overload, an orgy of culture, a liquid cathedral of desire. Over a bottle of Amarone that night in the Hotel d'Oro, which looked out over the Canale della Giudecca, we plotted our assault on the cultural treasures of Venice. The Academia as an introduction, the Scuola Grandi di San Rocco for a glut of Tintoretto, San Zaccaria for the great Bellini altarpiece, and at last to Santa Maria Gloriosa dei Frari for Titian's Assumption of the Virgin. And for once, not a hint of disappointment when the itinerary was completed the following day. That final presumption was the highlight for both of us, swooping up in her red gown to the heavens to make God and all the angels go weak at the knees. Titian's Mary is a voluptuous femme fatale, and the painting, with its billowing movement and vivid tones, says devotion is physical rapture. How we applied the concept to our own artistic debrief. Dear Gerhardt, his life had brought him such a wealth of knowledge, but such a paucity of affection. I enveloped him with my own vermilion passion. Inevitably, he thought an eternal flame had been kindled. But he was also a wonderfully dignified man. I explained to him, when we strolled around Murano, that my heart could not be tethered and that I was not to be possessed. He didn't understand, of course, for all his erudition and his profound insight into the history of art, that love should be shared unselfishly, and that we are all simply tourists on the earth. We should go everywhere, visit everything, delight, admire and celebrate, but once we insist on exclusive access, we are done. Then you are a socialist, he said. You may very well be right, I laughed, as we kissed goodbye. The train between Madrid and Lisbon does not, perhaps, pass through the most beautiful landscape of the Iberian Peninsula. However, it rumbles quietly across the parched and mournful ground, and the hissing of the wheels on the aching rails reminds you of the turmoil of Spanish history. And then, as we cross the border into the separate but equally troubled, crumbled and faded Portugal, you can't help, well, that is, I can't help, but feel my own life described in the world through which I am moving. Fatally flawed but resilient, perhaps or once resplendent but prone to catastrophe. All her better days behind her. I'm sure they mutter this at me as I amble so much more slowly than before along the shabby boulevards of my various destinations. It is true I have very little money now, because I spent it all. That is what money is for. And it is true that I have relatively few years still ahead. But no matter. I proceed with the same feigned nonchalance that adorned my past. Life, though much accumulated, is lived as lightly as ever. And so to Ivan Abramov, who 
whose twinkling eyes and ready wit compensate for the inevitable creaking and stooping that beset a man in his seventies. Ivan and I look out over the red tiles of Lisbon, and the sun beams down on our gentle indulgence. We are autumnal, but still lascivious. We don't reveal the detail of our ramshackle stories. We just let entertaining memories spill at opportune moments into our winding conversations. It doesn't matter who we have been. It merely matters that we endure and even cherish each other while we rattle on the yellow trams, while we listen with due melancholy to the fardo, while we stroll along the Tagus past the Tower of St. Vincent or canoodle disgracefully in the cloisters of Hieronymus. We are old lovers, and we accept our sad fragility with a calm resignation. Ivan, ex-businessman, ex-criminal, ex-politician, or whatever the snippets of his biography might describe, if reassembled by someone prone to judgment, sings to me in Russian. A rich baritone, his voice lingers in the teasing air and falls away with a dreamy grace. He tickles me with glinka, and he piques me with borodin. I am in Lisboa but the serenade is Slavic. Well, we must acknowledge our contradictions and confusions. Young lovers rush and huddle in the heat. Married couples bicker and snap in the afternoon glare. But we, who have avoided the shackles of what was once expected of us, we dally and meander. We scuff, unnoticed, down the dusty laneways of this tired old city. We are almost invisible. We have no duties to perform. But still... As the opalescent evening settles on us, and we lean in for the mild solace of a kiss, I see in Ivan's gaze, imploring. I see the request for permanence. I see companionship stutter and fall into fatal dependence. I see it again. I see the repetition. Even now, even as the floor is swept for the last dance, the wretched need, the ugly fear of solitude, the familiar craving for enslavement. Tomorrow at noon, the liner Henry the Navigator sails for Rio de Janeiro, and my single cabin awaits. Thank you for listening, and if you enjoyed the podcast, please share.